young people tend to be more culturally socialistic and these people will sooner or later enter institutions and they'll start becoming decision makers. Is it going to become worse? Yes, it will become worse. Oh. This is what I tell anybody. If you say a woman's an adult human female, if you say use a term like mass immigration, all of those things ultimately could land you, if not in jail, at least in front of a tribunal that will cost you months or years of your life and thousands of dollars. And it's almost as if it's okay to choose whichever identity you want and to be proud of it. But that is not the case. If you are a white man who also at the same time happens to be one. So if you're not a white man and you claim to be one, that's okay and people will respect it. And if you are a white man and you claim to be something else, people will also respect that. But if you are a white man who claims to be a white man, then that is a problem. It's not going to be tolerated. It's all structured by perceived where you are on the uh, victimhood totem pole, who has more oppression points. I am not white. I am therefore immune to the infection from the white guilt pandemic that is currently afflicting the North American and West European nations. If politics in the West is ever to return to normal rather than becoming even more polarized, white interests will need to be discussed. In this video, I talk to Eric Kaufman, a political scientist defending the white identity politics and the author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration and the Future of White Majorities. We discuss the absurdity of woke culture and what this means for us in the future. Enjoy the video. Um, I happen to be very interested in this topic, by the way. I was recently called a Nazi, <laughs> which was quite something, <laughs> because I have my views on immigration. But, you know, I recently had a member of the Republican Party on my podcast. He just nailed it when he said that the left should have a role of a mother and the right should have a role of a father. And now I'm thinking, okay, so what we basically have is the same dynamic as with a child who has an Oedipal mother and no father. Because if you look at it, that child is narcissistic. He has an identity that he chooses himself or herself or their self, whatever. And then everyone has to oblige to that. And then if you risk being offensive, you're getting punished. And he's the one who decides what offensive actually is. Also, if you're not with him, you're against him. So he's the one who's always right and you're always wrong. Do you feel like that is the case? Because you can make a perfect case of this society becoming more narcissistic and essentially that being a result of an Oedipal mother and no father. Wow. Oh, there's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think the narcissism is very much uh, a real thing. I don't know. There was a um, Robert Putnam in his last book, The Upswing, talks about a, a survey in the U.S. in the 1950s. I think the question was, do you agree with this? I am a very important person. And I think it was, you know, under 10 percent in the 1950s. And by the 1990s, I think it was up about 80 something percent. So, yeah, I mean, you, you've got people who are much more focused on themselves now. And that probably has a whole bunch of effects. I think that I think one of the effects is through the kind of moralism that it creates. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so. I am just a little bit above you morally, a little bit superior because I'm more right than you. The only, it's like more, Jonathan Haidt, I don't know if you've come across his work yes. on the righteous mind, but what he calls the individualizing moral foundations, care and harm, being worried about people being harmed. And then the other is equality of outcomes. That's the only thing that matters and all other moral foundations like freedom, you know, respect for loyalty to group, these sorts of things are, are not important. And, and I, so I think that, that the, the narcissism, it does breed a certain susceptibility to the ideologies that focus only on harm prevention, including microaggressions, for example, emotional harm, and or equal outcomes for different groups. Um, I think that's probably the way I would see it. But I think you raise a good point. I mean, one of the things we see is a big correlation between people who have a victim complex and support for others who claim a victim complex, which is the kind of ideology that's dominant now in, in elite circles, which is what I call cultural socialism, is essentially based on vicarious victimhood, taking the viewpoint of people who feel victimized for their identity. That is really at the core. And, and to the extent people are more fragile, they identify more with fragile victims. I think that's 
certainly contributing to where we are. Do you think there's more where they came from with the cultural socialism? Because young people tend to be more culturally socialistic and these people will sooner or later enter institutions and they'll start becoming decision makers. So is it going to become worse? Yes, it will become worse. Oh. This is what I tell anybody. If you look at the numbers, I, I've run a few surveys recently. You know, do you think J.K. Rowling should be dropped by her publisher uh, in Britain? Amongst 18 to 25s, it's 50-50, yes and no. Whereas anyone over 50, it's like 85 to 5, no. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, on, on any question, any survey, young people are massively more. Even if, if we compare a young leftist and an old leftist, they're both on the far left. The old far leftist is just much more tolerant. The young far leftist is just much more intolerant. And I think this stems from this imbibing of this victimhood type narrative, uh, which is just so much stronger. And so as those, I don't think they're going to grow out of it. I think they enter the workforce. If you look at what happened in the New York Times and other places, employee activism, particularly from these younger staffers, is a major reason yeah. for the kind of upsurges of cancel mob activity. And you also put forward a definition of wokeism, which I totally agree with. Uh, you said it's making the historically marginalized group sacred while at the same time downgrading the majority national identity. So, and do you think Canada is a representation of where we land and if wokeism takes the upper hand? Yeah, I do. I, I think Canada is probably furthest along. I mean, it's there's a cluster of places. Canada is one. I think Australia and New Zealand are, are getting there as well. To some degree, Scotland, or at least the political elites in Scotland are there as well. I, I think we get a sense of what it might look like. So, you know, very strong hate speech and disinformation laws in which hate speech and disinformation are words that are manipulated to mean ideas we don't like, ideas that question the sacredness of race, gender, and sexual identity groups, right? So if you say a woman's an adult human female, if you say use a term like mass immigration, all of those things ultimately could land you in if not in jail, at least in front of a tribunal that will cost you months or years of your life and thousands of dollars. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the uh, where we're heading. Um, and certainly the indoctrination in schools, the sort of naked uh, anti-majority discrimination in government, all of that will be maximized under the new regime that's that's taking place. And you can see that in Trudeau's Canada, but you can also see it a bit in Nicola Sturgeon's Scotland and what's happening there. So yeah, that, I think that's sort of that kind of almost Orwellian uh, setup that is emerging mm -hmm. when you have an unchecked uh, wokeism, or at least where wokeism has a, uh, or, or at least where the left in the electorate is dominant so that that allows the leftist parties to be able to push a woke agenda without an electoral penalty and, and with the media running cover to prevent these issues getting into the public, then, yeah, I think that's probably where we wind up. And there's always been differences in generations and their political leanings. So the younger generation is, statistically speaking, it has always had been more liberal than the older generation. Is the difference larger nowadays? I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, what is the difference in divergence between the youth and the older generation? Yeah, it depends a lot on country. I think right now, if you take the situation now in the English-speaking countries, there's a there's a bigger gender gap, or, or sorry, bigger uh, age gap on these questions around culture wars issues, and also on the left-right issue. Whereas in continental Europe, uh, I don't think the evidence so far, I think, is that the younger generations are not noticeably different from previous waves of younger generations, and they seem to be becoming more conservative over time, that, that there's some evidence that's not happening in the uh, English-speaking countries. And the other thing we see is if you compare an 18-year-old in 2000 or 1990 or 1980 to an 18-year-old in 2016, where we have data in the U.S., that same young person is just a lot more intolerant now than they would have been in 2000. So it's not about age. It's actually about generation and cohort. For a long time, young people have been more left, and we also know that over the life course, they move 20 points to the right. So mm. it's to some degree a normal thing. But some of the dis some of the gaps we see, like in Britain, there's a, 
Up until recently, there was a 45 point gap between the under 25s and the over 65s in their politics. I mean, that that is just much, much larger than has existed in Britain, really from the mid 60s when we have records up until the early 2000s. So or even 2010. So there's been a, a real magnification of the of the age gap. And, and I think this is reflecting the generational sensibility of the younger cohorts. But it can also be kind of like a chicken or the egg type of situation, you know. Is the older generation more conservative because as you mature, your temperament changes and you become more mature? Or is it the case that the whole political sphere is moving more and more to the left? So now even if you have the same political views after some generations, you're going to be viewed as more conservative than before. Well, yeah, it's both. I mean, I think on some issues... I mean, what we see is more polarization, let's say, you know, on some issues, of course, societies move to the left, like gay rights or, or, you know, sex before marriage or these sorts of things. But on other issues, it's much less clear, like immigration, wanting immigration to rise or fall. Uh, that's not really changed massively. It's changed a little bit, but not massively. At least the difference between wanting it to decline or not wanting it to decline. But what we see is a bigger partisan split. So in the U.S., let's say, the difference between Republicans and Democrats in the share who wanted less immigration was maybe 12 points as recently as it was within the band 5 to 10 points through the 80s, 90s, right up till 2012. And then it exploded to 50 points difference uh, between Trump and uh, Clinton. Same thing exact exactly happened in Canada. It went from maybe 10, 12 points to 50 points in between 2013 and 2019, even though the Canadian Conservatives didn't campaign on immigration restriction. Um, so yeah, you're having this sorting and polarization. Now, so I don't think it is just that society's moving left. Young people, the content of their beliefs has changed as they've been socialized by social media and by schools to be more woke. And and I think they either accept the wokeness or they reject the If they reject the wokeness, they're listening to Joe Rogan and, and Jordan Peterson and they're massively different. So I, I think there's this real split happening in the younger population, which is to some degree along gender lines. Younger men are are mass. There's a much bigger gender divide in politics, at least in the English-speaking countries, than there used to be. So in Canada, yeah, I mean, it's young men are twice as conservative as women. Same in the U. to some degree in the U.S. and in in Britain as well. And on the culture wars issues, again, massive gender splits in those younger age groups. It seems as if women are shifting to the left more rapidly than men. Also, if you look at demographics of the members of the LGBTQ community and people who identify as non-binary, there's more women amongst them than men. So which, apart from gender, and here again, we're speaking generally, which other characteristics tend to predict or be correlated with political views? Well, I think the demographics is is important, but it's it's only got sort of a limited amount of power, right? So even within young women, there's a lot of variation. Even amongst people with advanced PhDs and master's degrees, there's a lot of variation. So, but the most important demographics now, I would say, are age, gender. I actually think race is less important uh, on these issues. So in Britain, for example, non-white young people are less politically correct than white young people. Um, and in, in a lot of surveys, the race is not actually a key determinant. So it's really around age, gender, and LGBT, uh, where you stand on that. And, and the last one is, at least in the U.S. case, well, not just the U.S., but do you identify as having a religion or not? Uh, that's, mm. that's important. Um, but I think, um, so those are the key demographics but I think even within any one of those demographics, a much more important question is really about your psychological makeup. Do you see difference as disorderly or interesting? Do you want the past to be more, or the present to be more like the past or to be more different from the past? Those basic psychological orientations are much more powerful than anything like age, gender, even LGBT. I, mean, I would say that these are sort of those psychological dispositions, which are between a third and a half heritable in your genetics and early childhood, uh, those are just much more powerful. And so really, electorates are sorting, according to psychology, much more than in the past. Which is really bad news if we want to tackle vocism. So how do (laughs) we do it? 
the, the whole thing about heritability is one of the arguments is that as people get older, they become more like their genes. Their genes express themselves more. So it may be that some people who are by disposition and temperament predisposed to want stability and order might be pushed sort of towards the left cultural left position when they're young, but then revert to their more their genetic inclinations as they get older. So it, it, it could it could suggest that some people will revert. I mean, some of the data we have suggests it's particularly people who don't attend university. They start out almost as as left wing as others, but 10, 20 years later, they've diverged a fair bit. And so maybe those are the people that are going to change more. I talk to people on my podcast from the extreme right and from the extreme left, and there's not much difference in values and core values and in beliefs. Like nobody is for poverty. Nobody is for uh, uh, unfair discrimination. But the immigration policy and freedom to choose your identity tend to be more correlated with orderliness, as you said. So the more open and less orderly the person is, the less conservative they'll be and and in how we tackle the issue. So the root cause could be temperament. Um, should we do anything about it then even? Well, I mean, I think there's two, two aspects to the left-right thing. You know, the first is this idea of order disorder, which is that'll predict whether you support populist right politics, yeah. conservative immigration. But there's a second aspect, which is really around the, the tension between freedom and equality. So you can be on the left, you're kind of a liberal leftist who's tolerant, who likes debate, who likes toleration. Um, or you could be someone on the left who is very intolerant, who thinks that debate is triggering and is emotion, endangers the emotional safety of certain groups and therefore want to shut down debate. So there is a, a certain, so what I'd say is there's two separate questions. One is conservatism versus liberalism, let's say, and the other one is intolerant versus tolerant forms of the left. So it's the younger people are really in that intolerant box increasingly. Um, so even if you're on the left, it's one thing to be on the left and say, yeah, I like more cosmopolitanism and whatever, but, but I'm tolerant of different views. Uh, what we're seeing more and more is the younger people coming through on the left are uh, increasingly morally absolutist rather than relativist, more intolerant. Uh, now, what do we do about that? Well, I'm of the view that we have a lot of things that we can do within liberal democracy. We, the, the, the idea that, oh, liberal democracy is the reason that we have wokeness and, and progressive liberalism, I'm not, I don't really buy that argument. I think there are, so for example, but what I would say is I don't think it's enough to just trust long-term cultural sh changes and Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and others are going to get us out of this. I think they are very, the online space is extremely important for, the, for providing a check on the dominance of this ideology because the ideology is dominant in all our institutions. So we need a counter to that and the internet provides that. But I, I also think it is well past time for governments, particularly right of center parties, to uh, begin to use government power to start to break into the institutions to roll back the influence of this ideology. And so I'm kind of very much in favor of, yeah, just the use of government policy for, I mean, there's so many, so many things that could be done that are starting to be done in the US case. People like Ron DeSantis in Florida. So for example, mm -hmm changing the school curriculum, making sure every student understands the law, understands the history of free speech, understands not just the excesses of Nazism, but the excesses of communism and Maoism. They understand non-Western slavery and genocide as much as Western slavery and genocide. So, so in other words, the school curriculum has become completely unbalanced. And that's, I think, helped to change the outlook of younger generations and warp their view of the world. In addition, I think, yeah, governments need to enforce political impartiality amongst government employees in the civil service, in universities. When I say universities, I don't mean professors, but I mean all the administrators. Universities should not be taking any political positions like supporting Black Lives Matter or um, even supporting refugee intakes. All of these things should not be, uh, universities should be fined if they do 
if they make statements on these matters. Yeah, I think there's a, and also tackling political discrimination and bias. I think that needs to be taken as seriously as race and gender discrimination. Those sorts of policies need to be campaigned on. Um, parties need to, like DeSantis in Florida, they need to make it a central part of their message so people understand if you don't vote for this person, if you don't vote for the conservative option, you're going to get a party that favors diversity, equity, and inclusion, racial quotas in hiring, speech restrictions of all kinds, political discrimination and bias. If you want that, or if you want gender self-ID on the trans issue, trans women entering women's sports and so on, then go ahead and vote for these people. These issues have to become politicized. So, and, and, and if people decide, okay, I... We've, we've heard the arguments and we want to go for the woke option. Well, that's fine. We'll have had the debate. The problem is we don't have the debate now. It just kind of happens beneath the radar without public scrutiny in these institutions, school systems, civil service, universities. And actually, if you look at public opinion, it's two to one against these policies. So all we have to yeah. do is get this into the public debate and it'll be an easy win. Yeah, because most parents are actually against the CRT, even even the leftists. I mean, do you think that this is one of the things that causes division amongst the left, the teaching of CRT in schools? Ah, that's a good question. I, I think that the division on the left that you see is more over cancel culture. So the center left is against cancel culture. The, the far left is slightly in favor of it. Um, especially younger far leftists. The whole issue of firing people for speech, enforcing speech codes, policing speech, all of that is unpopular with the center left, but relatively, still relatively popular with the far left. If you ask a question like, is political correctness gone too far? The, there's only one group, which is kind of the far left group, which says no, every other group says yes, massively. So yeah, it does split the left um, indefinitely. And, and so those issues around cancel culture split the left. CRT, the question of, you know, something like saying Britain is a racist society, America is built on stolen land, teach kids that, you know, that kind of approach. Uh, what you see there is that those on the right are massively and overwhelmingly opposed, strongly opposed. And those on the left are kind of fragmented. Some of them think it's a good idea, some think it's a bad idea. I'm not sure this this divides the left as much as cancel culture. So this critical race theory is, I see it as somewhat distinct from cancel culture. Cancel culture is to do with enlightenment values of freedom of expression and objective truth. Critical race theory is much more to do with national identification, ethnic majority, group identification, and its history. Uh, and there, I think... The left is not as split, but they're more fragmented because some of them think, oh, yeah, it's a good idea to get rid of Churchill's statue. Others think, no, it's a bad idea. Others aren't sure. Whereas on the right, they're massively against. So, yeah, there are just different dynamics, but I think it is a divisive issue definitely in the, in the body politic. And there's also something to be said about the fact that there's no more community and Christianity is also falling apart. But speaking of division, do we know how many women who do not support Donald Trump would date a man or marry a man <laughs> who is a Trump supporter? Amongst U.S. Well, yes. it's basically uh, below 20%. And amongst sort of American undergraduate students who are not Trump supporters, only 7%. So that 7 are, is the is the share that would comfortably date a Trump supporter. Could it be the case that women are kind of pulling some of the men more to the left? I think men, they, they may fake it, but I'm not sure they're actually believers. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's interesting because apparently on dating side, now I'm too old to have experienced dating sites, but apparently political affiliation, at least in American dating sites, is something that is a fairly strong predictor of who matches up. I mean, I have no idea how much this works in practice, but mm. apparently it's becoming more of a thing. It is. That's why I have no matches on Tinder. <laughs> why do you think the woke movement puts such huge emphasis on making the society gender neutral? Why Why gender of all things? Because I can kind of get the race part, maybe because of the slavery, but why gender? Why focus on gender? So what what's at the heart of this is two things. One, there's an argument that says, okay, the left is no longer was no longer interested in class beginning in the 1960s, the proletariat was not of much interest, so they shifted to identity groups. 
the question then becomes, well, which identity groups? So we have to look at who's effective politically. So you can see that there was decolonization and third world uh, independence movements. So people of color in the th developing world, that's one place you could look. So we got third world socialism in the 60s and 70s. Another place is uh, civil rights movement, African-Americans, and, and they then became a template for other ethnic groups like Hispanics and, and, and the indigenous. But then, yeah, you had second and third wave feminism, which was also making claims and was also an effective political actor. Uh, people who are uh, mentally ill, there's no question they were treated badly. Uh, there's no question people who are uh, mentally handicapped likewise. But you're not going to be able to mobilize those people politically. They aren't. Right. They don't have the resources, so they're not as useful for a movement. And so I think gender, much more so than, say, being mentally ill, you know, or disabled even, you know, gender right. is a much stronger uh, group. You know, women are a much stronger group to mobilize. Of course, there's around all of these things, there's a focus very much on ascribed characteristics you're born with and cannot change. That's where the left has gone because they've kind of accepted, in a way, capitalist society or many of them have this idea that, yeah, okay, smarter people and people who work harder, you know, they, they kind of will earn more and we, we don't really want to go for command and control and redistribution. And, and you know, I, I, I sort of would largely subscribe to the same idea that, so, so they've abandoned the economic redistribution and that then means, okay, but we really want to focus now not on classes, but on ascribed characteristics, race, gender, sexuality, which are supposedly inborn right. um, and so any inequality on any inborn characteristic is an outrage okay so there's a whole bunch of inborn characteristics uh, you know hair color uh, whether you're intelligent or not but it's not politically useful to mobilize the unintelligent that's not going to be of any use so we're going to go for the ones that are established, race, uh, gender, and to some degree, sexuality. You know, when uh, when Adele accepted the gender neutral award, she said that she was proud to be a woman. And someone tweeted, the only people who are able to say that they're proud to be women are men. <laughs> so it's really funny sometimes. And it's also almost as if it's okay to choose whichever identity you want and to be proud of it. But that is not the case if you are a white man who also at the same time happens to be one. So if you're not a white man and you claim to be one, that's okay and people will respect it. And, and if you are a white man and you claim to be something else, people will also respect that. But if you are a white man who claims to be a white man, then that is a problem and it's going to be, it's not going to be tolerated. Is the othering from the right less tolerated than the othering from the left? I think that there's a stigma against majority groups, say whites or men, celebrating their identity this is what I call uh, asymmetrical multiculturalism. So ethnicity is something to be proud of if you are a minority group, but yeah. it is uh, something to run away from if you're a majority. That's one thing. But then there's the second thing, which is to do with whether you should identify with inborn, uh, whether you can cross boundaries and transgress boundaries. And it's not as simple as saying, oh, the left just believes in a blank slate, people should be able to choose their identity. And that's true in moving from man to woman or woman to man. You know, they very much believe that gender should be fluid. But you saw what happened to Rachel Dolezal, who wanted to be black and she's white. Yeah. That's a real taboo. That's a no-no. You're going to get attacked because that's a kind of, ooh, you know, you're culturally appropriating, right? So so it, it, it really depends it's all structured by perceived where you are on the uh, victimhood totem pole, who has more oppression points. You can't, it's very difficult to say, I want to move uh, from a position of higher privilege on, in, the, in their totem pole, say, to go from being white and appropriate being non-white is seen as a no-no. But you can go the other way. There's a whole set of rules, and it all comes down to the sacredness of those who are higher up the oppression totem pole and yeah. the sinfulness of those who are lower down the oppression totem pole. And 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 it's interesting. So the, the battle between trans and female is really a battle for who's got more victim points. And in a way, the trans have are assumed by progressive to have more victim points than women. And therefore, if it comes to something like entering women's spaces, 
the trans claim wins. It's like it's the king and the and a woman is the queen or the jack. The, the king trumps the jack or the queen in in terms of this game. You know, so you had women who feminists who thought, no, we have a high card in the deck, uh, getting trumped by trans who say, no, our card is higher than yours. You have to step back and just and and what you find then is feminists dividing. Some of them saying, yeah, okay. They're more oppressed than us. We have to make way for them. And others saying, hey, wait a minute. No, we're actually got more claims to oppression. And so that it becomes a sort of a debate over who's more oppressed. It's fair to say that you think liberals should be more tolerant of those who openly express their pride and their whiteness. I think absolutely. I mean, what I'd say is you've got to treat all groups similarly. I don't go for this special treatment. Um depending on your historical experience. I think the kind of person who might be attached to being part of an extended family, who is attached to an ethnic ancestral identity like Italian-American, it's a very strong correlation between uh, attachment to ancestry and attachment to your racial group. So mm -hmm. if you're really proud of being Thai or more attached to being Asian. And what this really is all about is some people, for some people, it's a bit like extended family. Some people are attached to it, some are not. I think that's a choice. I think it's perfectly legitimate life choices. But of course, there isn't a level playing field when it comes to expressing and recognizing these identities, as you know, because, again, it's very acceptable and, and uh, laudatory to say, yeah, I'm a proud Asian, Hispanic or black American is obviously not the same if you say I'm a proud white American. I think that's a, a major problem. I think it causes a lot of resentments even stimulates radicalization. So, I mean, the sooner we can get away from that double standard, I think the better. Yeah, because I know in your book you showed some survey data that the rise of right-wing populism in Western countries, including Brexit and Trump's election, is primarily due to the opposition to immigration in white populations. Which, which data did you look at? Yeah, no, that's right. So uh, the number one predictor of support for populist right politics is number one views on immigration uh, do you want immigration to be reduced and secondly how important an issue do you think immigration is compared to the economy healthcare, and everything else but in addition there is this question of political correctness so if you look at trump the biggest predictor of a of wanting trump in the republican primaries preferring trump over ted cruz as as leader of the republican party let's say was views on immigration, but number two was views on political correctness. Um, and so this issue is rising in importance. The cultural, so-called culture wars issues uh, are increasing their power, I think. Now, they're not as important as immigration, but they are much more important than they used to be. You said if politics in the West is ever to return to normal rather than becoming even more polarized, white interests will need to be discussed. You think the decline of white interests plays a big role in polarization and division? I think in terms of populism, the main driver is, as I mentioned, immigration, which and underneath immigration is it's mainly about culture. So the strongest predictor of your views on immigration is a question like things in Britain or British culture was better in the past. Or, or if you tell people, you know, Britain's going to have a only going to be minority white British in 2070, let's say, what should we do about immigration? If you, if you prime people with that, and then you take another group of people and just say, you know, should immigration be reduced or increased? I mean, you get a massive change when you tell people about that demographic shift. Both of these, I think, are pointing to the fundamentally uh, sort of culturally conservative, ethno-culturally conservative basis of this immigration sentiment. That's where I think it's people want slower change. Uh, they don't want zero, but they, they want slower change. And I think that is something that needs to be acceptable in a democratic society. It's a bit like someone saying, I want much higher taxes or much lower taxes will meet in the middle. Similarly with migration levels, we need to, some people be, need to be able to say, look, for cultural reasons, I don't want my group to decline as quickly. I don't want the country I know to change as quickly. So I want the numbers to be lower. That should be a perfectly respectable position. And then someone else will say, oh, well, we need to pay the pensions or whatever it is, make and make an argument for higher Uh, that's how democracy should work. Uh, it should be shades of gray, not just black and white. Oh, you want less? You're a deplorable, racist bigot, and we have to be silenced. Uh, you know, that is sort of roughly where we are in terms of the elite conversation in many countries right now. 
Um, now, in most democracies in the West, there is a conversation now about immigration levels. There are still some places, uh, Canada and Australia, that taboo is still in place. You can't really be in favor of reducing immigration in, in those countries without being called a racist. Um, I don't think it's quite as bad as that in, in most other European countries or most, most other Western countries, but this was essentially why populism emerged, because the mainstream parties were hemmed in and they couldn't make the argument for less migration. So the populist Sweden Democrats had to pop up and make that argument because the moderates were afraid to make it. That's an example. Or Trump pushed, made this issue front and center, the border, where the other candidates were scared to make that their main, a major issue that they would campaign on. And so in a way, the fact that, that political correctness narrowed the debate opened space for populists. Now, when populists come in, then you get the anti-populists, and then you're into a, into a system of polarization, which I think we're starting to see more. Well, we've been seeing more and more of since 2015 or thereabouts. Yeah, I think that is success, being able to have, a, not to agree on everything, but to be able to have a decent conversation and um, now I'm going to ask you that question. What type of immigration policy do you think it's best to implement? So that's the first part. And then the yeah. second part, how big of a role should religion play? Religion. Religion. I think people should be able to argue for uh, low numbers, for slower cultural change or quicker cultural change. To, to, to Because cultural views are really central, particularly to restrictionist views on immigration. And I think if those views were aired more openly and without the kind of rancor that we see now, I think it would be a much healthier environment. There'd be more of an outlet for these mm. views, a healthier outlet, democratic outlet. You know, the levels that we see, you know, they might be somewhat lower, but I just think it would take some of the, the toxicity out of the debate and lower the temperature. Because once you have this sense that certain perspectives are uh, not acceptable, even when actually there's nothing uh, illiberal about those perspectives, then you get a lot of discontent building up. And that then can find other outlets which are maybe more dangerous or not going to be very nice in many ways. I think in the U.S. case, they couldn't really have a debate over migration levels. And so the debate was then saying, okay, well, can we deny public services to illegal immigrants? So, you know, some, some person shows up at a hospital, you're not going to give them life-saving treatment. I mean, that's to me much worse than saying, actually, we're going to build a wall. Yeah. We're going to get tough on ID. To me, that's a, a much more humane thing to do than to you know talk about cutting off public services to, to people. So yeah, I, I think you can get something that's much worse when you don't allow a democratic debate to take place. We also know that the more disease and less safety there is in the country, the more conventional and right-leaning people become. So, and by the way, that's also one of the things that made it easier for Hitler to take over Germany because Germany was in chaos and Hitler brought order. Do you think there has been more of a pushback against the wokeism after the pandemic? Boy, I, mean, I think there has been. So, so I think we have to step back a little bit and, and see wokeism not as something that's just sprung up since 2015, but something that is much longer history. It's one of the points that I make also in the book is that we're in our third great awakening. You, you may be a familiar with American Protestantism. It's had a number of these waves of emotional enthusiasm, the first and second great awakenings, mass, mass emotions uh, and mobilization. Similarly for cultural, what I call cultural socialism, it has had three waves. The first in the late 1960s with the student revolts, the second in the late 1980s with the rise of political correctness, Afrocentrism, multiculturalism, and then post-2015 or sort of from about 2013-14, this most recent wave. Those first two waves, we didn't get very much pushback. And it's important to recognize we got, yeah, I would say much more limited mobilization. So those issues never really penetrated into electoral politics, for example. This time around, we're actually seeing more mobilization against, and we are seeing the issues of critical race theory, for example, enter American electoral politics, the issue of political correctness as a major political issue Trump was talking about. That's new. So I think on the positive side, the counter-mobilization, especially from about 2017, but even beginning in 2015, I mean, that's quite distinctive compared to the last two waves 
that we saw. And so I think that's the grounds for some optimism. Now, on the negative side, of course, there are just a lot more foot soldiers pushing this ideology in so many different walks of life now. And so the situation, we're closer to midnight in a way towards a point of no return. That's the bad side. But on the good side, there's more counter-mobilization. I mean, what what, what I think happened in the pandemic, I mean, you had the George Floyd 2020 moment where you just had a a complete surge of of craziness. Um, We retreated a little bit from that surge. And I think if you look at the cancellations databases that fire runs of academics, professors being targeted for firing, you know, the peak was 2020 and it's, it's lower in 21 and in 22. Now, that's still higher than it would have been, say, in 2010. So we're still not in a great place. But I'd say there's been a retreat from the high watermark of 2020. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming year, whether the line continues to drop or whether we're going to be stabilizing at what is still a pretty high rate. Uh, my own view is because of the younger populations being more woke and entering the workforce, we are structurally in a situation where there's more and more pressure to push the agenda on diversity, equity, on critical race, on all of these things. But maybe, at least temporarily, there will be somewhat of a stabilization in terms of attempts to fire and shame people online. Maybe that's kind of reached at least a temporary limit. You know, when you bend a ruler in one side too much. But do you think that people who are supporters of the CRT actually believe they're doing the right thing? Or do you think they kind of use it as a tool to tear down systems that they feel resentful against? Because in practicality, what critical race theory seems to do is divide us into tribes and then promote power struggle between these tribes. Yes. Well, the the whole reason for critical race theory is that any difference in outcome between identity groups is viewed as intolerable unless it's about a historically marginalized group doing better than a historically dominant group. So if African-Americans aren't doing as well in university or in employment, the only permissible explanation is racial discrimination. Whereas if you were to compare, let's say, two ethnic groups like within the whites, like Jews and uh, Irish traveler, Gypsy and Irish travelers, let's say in Britain, those are the two ends of the economic spectrum. Uh, they would be much less fussed about the fact that, you know, Jews are making many, many times more money than Gypsy and Irish travelers because, you know, they might go for a certain amount of, of a discrimination narrative, uh, but in a way that's not really politically important to them, even though, that di- even though those differences are probably much, much larger than the racial differences. Um, so in order to explain the racial outcome gap differences, they have to resort to these hidden power structures that you can't see, you can't measure, you can't touch scientifically, but boy, they're there, trust me. Uh, it's my lived experience, right? So um, that's what's being pushed in the schools, uh, and, and that's really where the power comes from behind uh, behind CRT. I mean, why are they doing it? I just think, I think it's just part of the ideology, because the ideology is about... Those two moral foundations, um, equality of outcome, not of treatment, but of outcome. And number two, um, care harm. So you can't offend in in even the most microscopic way, the most sensitive member of one of these historically marginalized groups. So those two factors, the microaggressions and the equal outcome, that's an ideology they believe in. And I think they really believe in it. And I think a lot of, uh, also a lot of mainstream left people believe in it because it sounds kind of right. You know, if they hear someone say a word like, ooh, equity, sounds a bit just like equal treatment, doesn't it? You know, even though what you're doing is you're actually treating people unequally yes, in order to engineer right. equal outcomes. But they, they just kind of in their mind just have this blob they call equality and that's got a plus sign on it. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. If, if the marks, if there was no racial difference between uh, the average of the of different groups, there would be no issue. They'd accept the the differences, right? But if yeah. there is any racial difference that runs in the wrong direction, that's not permissible. It's yeah. a bit like, and and that's one of the reasons they're dismantling, for example, gifted programs or standardized testing in schools. You know, any time if you have a standardized test and certain racial groups do worse on it than others. It's unacceptable. Uh, but of course, every time you get rid of one of these things like standardized tests or disciplining 
children who misbehave, if there's a racial discrepancy, any of these things. But every time you dismantle one of those, you actually make it harder for the racial minority to actually progress. What you're doing is you're actually creating more chaos in their schools so the bright black students can't get ahead, they can't benefit from gifted programs, they can't. So all of these things are actually negatively impacting the very people they claim to be helping. They just can't accept that there are many reasons for inequalities, and the most simple one is really how much of an emphasis does the culture place on delayed gratification, saving, education, all of these sorts of... I mean, we don't even have to enter more contentious terrain around, you know, heritability or anything. I think even if you assume genetic equality, you can't you can't just brush away cultural differences. And, and you see those cultural differences between black groups. So uh, Nigerian immigrants do a lot better than, um, you know, native-born U.S. Uh, black uh, or, or even in a ca Caribbean immigrant background. So... Right. That's very hard to explain on the on the basis of color discrimination. Now, to play the devil's advocate to both of us, what's so bad about the politics moving to the left? Why is it bad if we are becoming a mixture of all cultures and willing to let the fine race be lost? And why is it bad if the future is only one mixed race and people can choose their gender if they wish so? I mean, obviously, it will result in a loss of human diversity, but, you know, you could say maybe the cost is worth it. People choosing their gender. It, it depends what you're talking about. If you're talking about moving to the left, that also implies progressive illiberalism. So an Orwellian society where there is no free the speech. The animal farm situation. Yeah, objective oh. truth, free speech, rule of law, um, due process, all of those things out the window in the name of equality you know, equality between groups and and not offending people so if, if that's now of course if people want to go into that society and give up their freedoms and, and reason fine but i think it's a nightmare um that, so that's one major problem obviously now if we turn to the issues around critical race theory and attacks on the majority i mean i think i just think that you know if you you're never going to get most people in a group to bow down and say, yes, I'm from a sinful group and I hate my ancestors. I mean, you will get some people to buy. You may get half of those people to buy into that, but you're, what you're, you're inevitably going to get a backlash as we're seeing, and that's just going to lead to incredible bitterness. So I think that the, the, the risk with tearing down statues and rewriting history books, the majority group, is you're, you're simply stoking resentment and populism um, and, and, and division. And, and of course, you then have to ask, well, what are the effects of being a very divided society? And one of the effects of that is you can't effectively solve other social problems when you're being torn apart. Yeah. How are you going to resist China? How are you going to deal with yeah. improving economic growth, with tackling childhood poverty, when all the energy is being sucked into this culture war? So uh, I think for all those reasons, it's just incredibly negative. In your view, what's actually the future of white majority now? There is a, a long-term process of um, racial mixing, which even a small amount of intermarriage over a long enough period will, will lead to this anyway. So I don't think that's particularly <laughs> radical. So I think you are going to see the, the emergence. I mean, if looking at the projections, say, for Britain, which, and it's not that different from the U.S., next century... We're going to see a significant rise in the mixed-race share. It'll reach about 30% in Britain or in England the end of this century, and then that's going to rise to about 75% of the total by 2150, according to the if – we're, if we're using similar fertility and mixing projection rates that we have now – my view is that that mixed race group will largely attach itself to the established white groups, myths and symbols and collective memories. And, and so they will make, they will carry forth that hmm. heritage. Um, not all of them. There will be probably a minority who will be probably on the left, let's say, although who knows what the political uh, divides will be in the in a century, um, who might hark, you know, who might celebrate the multicultural uh past, but I think that that's less likely, especially in a world where the the white share is going to be, you know, it's only, it was a third or something. Um, well, if we go back to like 1950 or 1900, I'm trying to remember exactly when, um, and it's down to about 10% now, and I think it'll, or maybe about 12%, and it'll continue to decline. So 
certainly in terms of what's distinctive in the world, a world where the West will be much smaller as a as a as a component, um, the distinctiveness will come much more from the kind of white heritage than it will from the various other heritages that have entered. So I think that's one reason where, why I think the identity will trend towards that part of uh, the makeup of this mixed group. Now, of course, you've got other wild cards, right? You have got the rise of mainly white religious sects like the Amish and the Hutterites, oh, yeah, the sure, Orthodox yeah. Jews. Um, these are sort of groups that have very high rates of reproduction. Yeah, but 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 also, you know, yeah, so, there, so one of the projections in the book was that in the mid-2200s, I mean, if the Amish continue their rate of increase, they will be 300 million in the United States. One of the major sources of kind of unmixed whiteness, as you say, will be uh, these religious sects who will become a larger and larger share of the total. And so that's kind of going against the projections or predictions for more mixed population. Um, mm. And then the final wild card is just this whole question of uh, designer babies and gene editing and what that's yeah, going to yeah, mean. Sure. Do you think we are headed to a gender neutral society or do you think it will kind of fix itself? I think the trans thing is, first of all, the trans thing is not very large. At the most, even amongst young people, at the most, the, the highest number I've seen is maybe a few percentage points. I think a, a very large amount of that, a significant component of that is just identity without any real physical manifestations. And I think it's going to peter out as people get older. So, and so you could say, ask the same thing about LGBT. I mean, some of the surveys are showing sort of 25, 30% LGBT in the under 25 population. I think there are reasons to think that's an overestimate based on census data shows a lot lower share. But but I think, again, that's mostly the evidence is that's mostly identification rather than LGBT behavior. Sexual behavior is actually not increased very much. So my view is the trans gender fluid thing will remain a very small phenomenon. I don't think it's going to increase and increase and increase. I mean, some evidence shows that it's peaked. I mean, the, I mean, the other thing to note in the LGBT front is that most of the increase in LGBT, it's heavily concentrated in the most left-wing part of the young population. That's where the increase has been the fastest. It's partly a political expression. The gender sexuality stuff, I'm not as, I don't think will be as monumental as the as the racial ethnic. Where can people find you? Yeah, so I'm on uh, the internet at, um, I have my website, which is uh, www.sneps.net, S-N-E-P-S. Net, where you'll find um, I put up all of my articles and recordings and podcasts and everything. Um, also on Twitter at uh, E-P-K-A-U-F-M. Um, so you can find me there. And uh, yeah, it's otherwise it's been, um, it's been a pleasure, Erska. Yeah, you too. And you have a brilliant book called The White Shift that is, uh, it's on Amazon. Yeah, so that's, yeah, my book, White Shift, which I should have mentioned as well. There's a U.S. version, a U.K. version, European version, so. <laughs> awesome, awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, thanks for having me. All right, you are welcome. That I've done U.S. versions of both of these surveys as well. Um, so, yeah, that is sort of the basis of the report. And the, I guess 